Chapter One, Part One of The Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter One His Return from Exile. Part One. Cicero's life for the next two years was made conspicuous by a series of speeches which were produced by his exile and his return. These are remarkable for the praise lavished on himself, and by the violence with which he attacked his enemies. It must be owned that never was abuse more abusive, or self-praise uttered in language more laudatory. Cicero had now done all that was useful in his public life. The great monuments of his literature are to come. None of these had as yet been written, except a small portion of his letters, about a tenth, and of these he thought no more in regard to the public than do any ordinary letter-writers of to-day. Some poems had been produced, and a history of his own consulship in Greek, but these are unknown to us. He had already become the greatest orator, perhaps of all time, and we have many of the speeches spoken by him. Some we have, those five namely telling the story of Verres, not intended to be spoken, but written for the occasion of the day, rather than with a view to permanent literature. He had been quaestor, aedile, praetor, and consul, with singular and undeviating success. He had been honest in the exercise of public functions, when to be honest was to be singular. He had bought golden opinions from all sorts of people. He had been true to his country, and useful also a combination which it was given to no other public man of those days to achieve. Having been praetor and consul, he had refused the accustomed rewards, and had abstained from the provinces. His speeches, with but few exceptions, had hitherto been made in favour of honesty. They are declamations against injustice, against bribery, against cruelty, and all on behalf of decent civilised life. Had he died, then— he would not have become the hero of literature, the marvel among men of letters whom the reading world admires, but he would have been a great man, and would have saved himself from the bitterness of Caesarian tongues. His public work was in truth done. His further service consisted of the government of Cilicia for a year, an employment that was odious to him, though his performance of it was a blessing to the province. After that there came the vain struggle with Caesar, the attempt to make the best of Caesar victorious, the last loud shriek on behalf of the Republic, and then all was over. The fourteen years of life which yet remained to him sufficed for erecting that literary monument of which I have spoken, but his public usefulness was done. To the reader of his biography it will seem that these coming fourteen years will lack much of the grace which adorned the last twenty. The biographer will be driven to make excuses, which he will not do without believing in the truth of them, but doubting much whether he may beget belief in others. He thinks that he can see the man passing from one form to another, his doubting devotion to Pompey, his enforced adherence to Caesar, his passionate opposition to Antony, but he can still see him true to his country, and ever on the alert against tyranny, and on behalf of pure patriotism." At the present we have to deal with Cicero in no vacillating spirit, but loudly exultant and loudly censorious. 
Within the two years following his return he made a series of speeches, in all of which we find the altered tone of his mind. There is no longer that belief in the ultimate success of justice and ultimate triumph of the Republic which glowed in his Verine and Catiline orations. He is forced to descend in his aspirations. It is not whether Rome shall be free or the bench of justice pure, but whether Cicero shall be avenged and Gabinius punished. It may have been right, it was right, that Cicero should be avenged and Gabinius punished, but it must be admitted that the subjects are less alluring. His first oration, as generally received, was made to the Senate in honour of his return. The second was addressed to the people on the same subject. The third was spoken to the College of Priests, with the view of recovering the ground on which his house had stood, and which Clodius had attempted to alienate forever by dedicating it to a pretended religious purpose. The next, as coming on our list, though not so in time, was addressed again to the Senate, concerning official reports made by the public soothsayers, as interpreters of occult signs, as to whether certain portents had been sent by the gods to show that Cicero ought not to have back his house. Before this was made he had defended Sextius, who as tribune had been peculiarly serviceable in assisting his return. This was before a bench of judges, and separated from this, though made apparently at the same time, is a violent attack upon Vatinius, one of Caesar's creatures, who was a witness against Sextius. Then there is a seventh regarding the disposition of the provinces among the proprietors and proconsuls, the object of which was to enforce the recall of Piso from Macedonia and Gabinius from Syria, and to win Caesar's favour by showing that Caesar should be allowed to keep the two Gauls and Illyricum. To these must be added two others, made within the same period, for Celius and Balbus. The close friendship between Cicero and the young man Celius was one of the singular details of the orator's life. Balbus was a Spaniard, attached to Caesar, and remarkable as having been the first man not an Italian who achieved the honour of the consulship. It has been disputed whether the four first of these orations were really the work of Cicero, certain German critics and English scholars having declared them to be parum Ciceronias, too little like Cicero. That is the phrase used by Nob, who published a valuable edition of all Cicero's works after the text of Ernesti in a single volume. Mr. Long, in his introduction to these orations, denounces them in language so strong as to rob them of all chance of absolute acceptance from those who know the accuracy of Mr. Long's scholarship. There may probably have been subsequent interpolations. The first of the four, however, is so closely referred to by Cicero himself in the speech made by him two years subsequently in the defence of Plancius, that the fact of an address to the Senate in the praise of those who had assisted him in his return cannot be doubted, and we are expressly told by the orator that because of the importance of the occasion he had written it out before he spoke it. As to the Latinity, it is not within my scope, nor indeed within my power, to express a confident opinion. But as to the matter of the speech, I think that Cicero, in his then frame of mind, might have uttered what is attributed to him. Having said so much, I shall best continue my narrative by dealing with the four speeches as though they were genuine. Side note. B.C. 57, Itat 50. Cicero landed at Brundisium on the 5th of August. 
the day on which his recall from exile had been enacted by the people, and there met his daughter Tullia, who had come to welcome him back to Italy on that her birthday. But she had come as a widow, having just lost her first husband, Piso Frugi. At this time she was not more than nineteen years old. Of Tullia's feelings we know nothing from her own expressions, as they have not reached us, but from the warmth of her father's love for her, and by the closeness of their friendship, we are led to imagine that the joy of her life depended more on him than on any of her three husbands. She did not live long with either of them, and died soon after the birth of a child, having been divorced from the third. I take it there was much of triumph in the meeting, though Piso Frugi had died so lately. The return of Cicero to Rome was altogether triumphant. It must be remembered that the contemporary accounts we have had of it are altogether from his own pen. They are taken chiefly from the orations I have named above, though subsequent allusions to the glory of his return to Rome are not uncommon in his works. But had his boasting not been true, the contradictions to them would have been made in such a way as to have reached our ears. Plutarch indeed declares that Cicero's account of the glory of his return fell short of the truth. It may be taken for granted that with that feeble monster, the citizen populace of Rome, Cicero had again risen to a popularity equal to that which had been bestowed upon him when he had just driven Catiline out of Rome. Of what nature were the crowds who were thus loud in the praise of their great consul, and as loud afterwards in their rejoicing at the return of the great exile, we must form our own opinion from circumstantial evidence. There was a mass of people, with keen ears, taking artistic delight in eloquence and in personal graces, but determined to be idle, and to be fed as well as amused in their idleness. And there were also vast bands of men ready to fight, bands of gladiators they have been called, though it is probable that but few of them had ever been trained to the arena, whose business it was to shout as well as to fight on behalf of their patrons. We shall not be justified in supposing that those who, on the two occasions named, gave their sweet voices for Cicero, were only the well-ordered though idle proportion of the people, whereas they who had voted against him in favour of Clodius had all been assassins, bullies, and swordsmen. We shall probably be nearer the mark if we imagine that the citizens generally were actuated by the prevailing feelings of their leaders at the moment, but were carried into enthusiasm when enabled, without detriment to their interests, to express their feelings for one who was in truth popular with them. When Cicero, after the death of the five conspirators, declared that the men had lived, wixerunt, his own power was sufficient to ensure the people that they would be safe in praising him. When he came back to Rome, Pompey had been urgent for his return, and Caesar had acceded to it. When the bill was passed for banishing him, the triumvirate had been against him, and Clodius had been able to hound on his crew. But Milo also had a crew, and Milo was Cicero's friend. As the Clodian crew helped to drive Cicero from Rome, so did Milo's crew help to bring him back again. Cicero, on reaching Rome, went at once to the capital, to the temple of Jupiter, and there returned thanks for the great thing that had been done for him. He was accompanied by a vast procession, who from the temple went with him to his brother's house, where he met his wife, and where he resided for a time. His own house, in the close neighbourhood, had been destroyed. He reached Rome on the 4th of September, 
and on the fifth an opportunity was given to the then hero of the day for expressing his thanks to the Senate for what they had done for him. His intellect had not grown rusty in Macedonia, though he had been idle. On the fifth Cicero spoke to the Senate, on the sixth to the people. Before the end of the month he made a much longer speech to the priests in defence of his own property. Out of the full heart the mouth speaks, and his heart was very full of the subject. His first object was to thank the Senate and the leading members of it for their goodness to him. The glowing language in which this is done goes against the grain with us when we read continuously the events of his life as told by himself. His last grievous words had been expressions of despair addressed to Atticus. Now he breaks out into a paean of triumph. We have to remember that eight months had intervened, and that the time had sufficed to turn darkness into light. If I cannot thank you as I ought, O conscript fathers, for the undying favours which you have conferred on me, on my brother and my children, ascribe it, I beseech you, to the greatness of the things you have done for me, and not to the defect of my virtue. Then he praises the two consuls, naming them Lentulus and Metellus, Metellus, as the reader will remember, having till lately been his enemy. He lords the praetors and the tribunes, two of the latter members having opposed his return. But he is loudest in praise of Pompey, that Samsiceramus, that Jerusalemarius, that Arabarches, into whose character he had seen so clearly when writing from Macedonia to Atticus that Cnaeus Pompey, who by his valour, his glory, his achievements, stands conspicuously the first of all nations, of all ages, of all history. We cannot but be angry when we read the words, though we may understand how well he understood that he was impotent to do anything for the Republic unless he could bring such a man as Pompey to act with him. We must remember, too, how impossible it was that one Roman should rise above the falsehood common to Romans. We cannot ourselves always escape even yet from the atmosphere of duplicity in which policy delights. He describes the state of Rome in his absence. When I was gone, you, you the Senate, could decree nothing for your citizens, or for your allies, or for the dependent kings. The judges could give no judgment, the people could not record their votes, the Senate availed nothing by its authority. You saw only a silent forum, a speechless Senate-house, a city dumb and deserted. We may suppose that Rome was what Cicero described it to be when he was in exile and Caesar had gone to his provinces, but its condition had been the result of the crushing tyranny of the triumvirate rather than of Cicero's absence. Lentulus, the present consul, had been, he says, a second father, almost a god to him. But he would not have needed the hand of a consul to raise him from the ground, had he not been wounded by consular hands. Catulus, one of Rome's best citizens, had told him that, though Rome had now and again suffered from a bad consul, she had never before been afflicted by two together. While there was one consul worthy of the name, Catullus had declared that Cicero would be safe. But there had come two, two together, whose spirits had been so narrow, so low, so depraved, so burdened with greed and ignorance, 
that they had been unable to comprehend, much less to sustain, the splendour of the name of consul. Not consuls were they, but buyers and sellers of provinces. These were Piso and Gabinius, of whom the former was now governor of Macedonia, and the latter of Syria. Cicero's scorn against these men, who as consuls had permitted his exile, became a passion with him. His subsequent hatred of Antony was not as bitter. He had come there to thank the assembled senators for their care of him, but he is carried off so violently by his anger that he devotes a considerable portion of his speech to these indignant utterances. The reader does not regret it. Abuse makes better reading than praise, has a stronger vitality, and seems, alas, to come more thoroughly from the heart. Those who think that genuine invective has its charms would ill spare Piso and Gabinius. He goes back to his eulogy, and names various praetors and officers who have worked on his behalf. Then he declares that by the voice of the present consul, Lentulus, a decree has been passed in his favour more glorious than has been awarded to any other single Roman citizen, namely that from all Italy those who wished well to their country should be collected together for the purpose of bringing him back from his banishment, him Cicero. There is much in this in praise of Lentulus, but more in praise of Cicero. Throughout these orations we feel that Cicero is put forward as the hero, whereas Piso and Gabinius are the demons of the peace. "'What could I leave as a richer legacy to my posterity?' he goes on to say, opening another clause of his speech, "'than that the Senate should have decreed that the citizen who had not come forward in my defence was one regardless of the Republic.' By these boastings, though he was at the moment at the top of the ladder of popularity, he was offending the self-importance of all around him. He was offending especially Pompey, with whom it was his fate to have to act. But that was little to the offence he was giving to those who were to come many centuries after him, who would not look into the matter with sufficient accuracy to find that his vanity deserved forgiveness, because of his humanity and desire for progress. O oh, Lentulus, he says at the end of the oration, since I am restored to the Republic, as with me the Republic is itself restored, I will slacken nothing in my efforts at liberty, but if it may be possible, will add something to my energy. In translating a word here and there, as I have done, I feel at every expression my incapacity. There is no such thing as good translation. If you wish to drink the water with its life and vigour in it, you must go to the fountain and drink it there. On the day following he made a similar speech to the people, if indeed the speech we have was from his mouth or his pen, as to which it has been remarked that in it he made no allusion to Clodius, though he was as bitter as ever against the late consuls. From this we may gather that, though his audience was delighted to hear him even in his self-praise, there might have been dispute had he spoken ill of one who had been popular as tribune. His praise of Pompey was almost more fulsome than that of the day before, and the same may be said of his self-glorification. Of his brother's devotion to him he speaks in touching words, but in words which make us remember how untrue to him afterwards was that very brother. There are phrases so magnificent throughout this short piece that they obtain from us as they are read 
forgiveness for the writer's faults. Sic ulciscar facinorum singula. Let the reader of Latin turn to chapter 9 of the oration and see how the speaker declares that he will avenge himself against the evildoers whom he has denounced. Cicero, though he had returned triumphant, had come back ruined in purse, except so far as he could depend on the Senate and the people for reimbursing to him the losses to which he had been subjected. The decree of the Senate had declared that his goods should be returned to him, but the validity of such a promise would depend on the value which might be put upon the goods in question. His house on the Palatine Hill had been razed to the ground, his Tusculan and Formian villas had been destroyed, his books, his pictures, his marble columns, his very trees had been stolen. But worst of all, an attempt had been made to deprive him for ever of the choicest spot of ground in all the city, the Park Lane of Rome, by devoting the space which had belonged to him to the service of one of the gods. Clodius had caused something of a temple of liberty to be built there, because ground so consecrated was deemed at Rome, as with us, to be devoted by consecration to the perpetual service of religion. It was with the view of contesting this point that Cicero made his next speech, pro domo sua, for the recovery of his house, before the bench of priests in Rome. It was for the priests to decide this question. The Senate could decree the restitution of property generally, but it was necessary that that spot of ground should be liberated from the thraldom of sacerdotal tenure by sacerdotal interference. These priests were all men of high birth and distinction in the Republic. Nineteen among them were consulares, or past consuls. Superstitious awe affects more lightly the consciences of priests than the hearts of those who trust the priests for their guidance. Familiarity does breed contempt. Cicero, in making this speech, probably felt that if he could carry the people with him, the college of priests would not hold the prey with grasping hands. The nineteen consulares would care little for the sanctity of the ground if they could be brought to wish well to Cicero. He did his best. He wrote to Atticus concerning it a few days after the speech was made, and declared that if he had ever spoken well on any occasion, he had done so then, so deep had been his grief, and so great the importance of the occasion. And he at once informs his friend of the decision of the bench, and of the ground on which it was based. If he who declares that he dedicated the ground had not been appointed to that business by the people, nor had been expressly commanded by the people to do it, then that spot of ground can be restored without any breach of religion. Cicero asserts that he was at once congratulated on having gained his cause, the world knowing very well that no such authority had been conferred on Clodius. In the present mood of Rome, all the priests with the nineteen consulares were no doubt willing that Cicero should have back his ground. The Senate had to interpret the decision, and on the discussion of the question among them, Clodius endeavoured to talk against time. When, however, he had spoken for three hours, he allowed himself to be coughed down. It may be seen that in some respects even Roman fortitude has been excelled in our days. In the first portion of this speech, pro domo sua, Cicero devotes himself to a matter which has no bearing on his house. Concomitant with Cicero's return there had come a famine in Rome. Such a calamity was of frequent occurrence though I doubt whether their famines ever led to the mortality so frightful as that which desolated Ireland just before the repeal of the Corn Laws. 
No records, as far as I am aware, have reached us of men perishing in the streets. But scarcity was not uncommon, and on such occasions complaints would become very loud. The feeding of the people was a matter of great difficulty, and subject to various chances. We do not at all know what was the number to be fed, including the free and the slaves, but have been led by surmises to suppose that it was under a million even in the time of Augustus. But even though the number was no more than five hundred thousand at this time, the procuring of food must have been a complicated and difficult matter. It was not produced in the country. It was imported chiefly from Sicily and Africa, and was plentiful or the reverse, not only in accordance with the seasons, but as certain officers of state were diligent and honest, or fraudulent and rapacious. We know from one of the Verrai narrations the nature of the laws on the subject, but cannot but marvel that even with the assistance of such laws the supply could be maintained with any fair proportion to the demand. The people looked to the government for the supply, and when it fell short would make their troubles known with seditious grumblings, which would occasionally assume the guise of insurrection. At this period of Cicero's return, food had become scarce and dear, and Clodius, who was now in arms against Pompey as well as against Cicero, caused it to be believed that the strangers flocking into Rome to welcome Cicero had eaten up the food which should have filled the bellies of the people. An idea further from truth could hardly have been entertained. No chance influx of visitors on such a population could have had the supposed effect. But the idea was spread abroad, and it was necessary that something should be done to quiet the minds of the populace. Pompey had hitherto been the resource in state difficulties. Pompey had scattered the pirates, who seem, however, at this period to have been gathering ahead again. Pompey had conquered Mithridates. Let Pompey have a commission to find food for Rome— Pompey himself entertained the idea of a commission which should, for a time, give him almost unlimited power. Caesar was increasing his legions and becoming dominant in the West. Pompey, who still thought himself the bigger man of the two, felt the necessity of some great step in rivalry of Caesar. The proposal made on his behalf was that all the treasure belonging to the state should be placed at his disposal, that he should have an army and a fleet— and should be for five years superior in authority to every proconsul in his own province. This was the first great struggle made by Pompey to strangle the growing power of Caesar. It failed altogether. The fear of Caesar had already become too great in the bosoms of Roman senators to permit them to attempt to crush him in his absence. But a mitigated law was passed, enjoining Pompey to provide the food required, and conferring upon him certain powers. Cicero was nominated as his first lieutenant, and accepted the position. He never acted, however, giving it up to his brother Quintus. A speech which he made to the people on the passing of the law is not extant, but as there was hot blood about it in Rome, he took the opportunity of justifying the appointment of Pompey in the earlier portion of this oration to the priests. It must be understood that he did not lend his aid towards giving those greater powers which Pompey was anxious to obtain. His trust in Pompey had never been a perfect trust since the first days of the triumvirate. To Cicero's thinking, both Pompey and Caesar were conspirators against the Republic. Caesar was the bolder and therefore the more dangerous. It might probably come to pass that the services of Pompey would be needed for restraining Caesar. 
Pompey naturally belonged to the Optimates, while Caesar was as naturally a conspirator. But there never again could come a time in which Cicero would willingly entrust Pompey with such power as was given to him nine years before by the Lex Manilia. Nevertheless, he could still say grand things in praise of Pompey. To Pompey have been entrusted wars without number, wars most dangerous to the state, wars by sea and wars by land, wars extraordinary in their nature. If there be a man who regrets that this has been done, that man must regret the victories which Rome has won. But his abuse of Clodius is infinitely stronger than his praise of Pompey. In the passages in which he alludes to the sister of Clodius, I must refer the reader to the speech itself. It is impossible here to translate them or to describe them. And these words were spoken before the college of priests, of whom nineteen were consulars, and they were prepared with such care that Cicero specially boasted of them to Atticus, and declares that they should be put into the hands of all young orators. Montesquieu says that the Roman legislators, in establishing their religion, had no view of using it for the improvement of manners or of morals. The nature of their rites and ceremonies gives us evidence enough that it was so. If further testimony were wanting, it might be found in this address, Ad Pontifices, Cicero himself was a man of singularly clean life as a Roman nobleman, but in abusing his enemy he was restrained by no sense of what we consider the decency of language. He argues the question as to his house very well, as he did all questions. He tells the priests that the whole joy of his restoration must depend on their decision. Citizens who had hitherto been made subject to such penalties had been malefactors, whereas it was acknowledged of him that he had been a benefactor to the city. Clodius had set up on the spot not a statue of liberty, but as was well known to all men the figure of a Greek prostitute. The priests had not been consulted, the people had not ratified the proposed consecration. Of the necessity of such authority he gives various examples. And this has been done, he says, by an impure and impious enemy of all religions, by this man among women and woman among men, who has gone through the ceremony so hurriedly, so violently, that his mind and his tongue and his voice have been equally inconsistent with each other. My fortune, he says, as he ends his speech, all moderate as it is, will suffice for me. The memory of my name will be a patrimony sufficient for my children. But if his house be so taken from him, so stolen, so falsely dedicated to religion, he cannot live without disgrace. Of course, he got back his house, and with his house about £16,000 for its re-erection, and £4,000 for the damage done to the Tusculan villa, with £2,000 for the Formian villa. With these sums, he was not contented, and indeed they could hardly have represented fairly the immense injury done to him. End of chapter 1, part 1